number of their business checking account by heart, but who don't know the number of times Superman has died, which is at least 15, or the number of times Robin has died, which is actually only five. And then there's Doug Bost and Adam Bernstein, two men who should have better things to do but aren't doing them right now. These are two grown-ass men. Grown-ass men. With special grown-ass guest, Jerry Conway. Hi, Jerry. It's really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you guys. Welcome to Grown-Ass Men, the greatest comic book podcast of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, modest, too. You're about to meet a comic book writer, screenwriter, TV producer, former editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. He took over The Amazing Spider-Man from Stan Lee himself in 1972. He wrote the death of Gwen Stacy. He co-created The Punisher, Firestorm, Power Girl, Man-Thing, Killer Croc, Ben Riley, uh, Ms. Marvel, and Hammerhead. He wrote the first Superman-Spider-Man crossover. On TV, he wrote for Law & Order, Criminal Intent, and Matlock, and Diagnosis Murder, and Jake and the Fat Man. On top of all that, he's a very nice guy. Ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Conway. It's great to have you on. When we once you agreed to do the show, I looked up, you know, all the books that you have written, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I have at least fifty of them in my closet right now. Absolutely, <laughs> you yeah. You're well represented in my house already, without even me knowing it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what happens when when you had a career that spanned forty or fifty years and <laughs> written for both companies uh, extensively. It's. Uh, Keep being ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah, but you've written a lot of great, great stuff that I think universally is deeply appreciated. Well, and thanks. I mean, it's crazy. I know. <laughs> it's, it's like classic after classic. And, you know, of course, there are so many big characters you created, but also you created Hammerhead. He's my favorite villain. <laughs> He's the best villain. One of mine, too. <laughs> Him and uh, him and Tombstone, I think, don't get enough love. Yeah, I love Hammerhead. When Spider-Man moved away from uh, the street-level villains, you know, into more cosmic-y type villains, I think it, uh, characters like Hammerhead and Tombstone and uh, even Kingpin sort of have less of an impact. I, I miss those times, though, because I... I don't need Spidey fighting Thanos so much. No, no. I mean, I mean, the perfect thing about Spider-Man was always that he felt, I mean, he was your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> he hung out at the same diners and pharmacies that the three of us did in Brooklyn. Absolutely. You Absolutely. Know, like, oh, I got to pick something up before I go back to Queens. Yeah. You know? <laughs> One question that I have is just about, like you, you're saying, you, you grew up on the East Coast. Where did you buy comics when you were... When you were a kid, where did you actually go to buy comics? I bought actually my first uh, Marvel comic, my first Fantastic Four, which was uh, issue number four, at oh. the uh, the candy store around the corner. Uh, we called it a candy store, of course, because we were interested in the candy. But it was a it was a newsstand uh, slash. Uh, I mean, what would be a Seven Eleven today? But you know, it was was more of a uh, just a local. Uh, place and it had a spinner rack that had a stand for comics and I was over there uh, I guess with my mom I would have probably been about 10 years old uh, yeah probably because it was 62 
saw this comic, you know, with uh, the Submariner uh, on it uh, and uh, the thing and uh, Human Torch and it looked really interesting and I picked it up and ran through it and then the next uh, next day went back to see if they had any more and they had issue three still on sale <laughs> and I bought wow. that. <laughs> and then when I went into, when, I, when we moved to Queens, it was again, uh, local newsstands. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was, I think a year older than me, discovered that uh, the newsstand in Jamaica, Queens, uh, would get the comics on Monday night rather than Tuesday. So we would bike over there on Monday night and pick up the five or ten Marvel comics that we, that we were buying or uh, the, a couple of DC comics that we were buying and get them a, get them a, a day early. So that was, that was how we uh, bought our comics and, and devoured them in the, in the day. Jerry told us that he kind of pushed his way into the comics business when he was still a teenager by visiting the offices of DC Comics. They had these uh, tours that they would do weekly during the summer. And after convincing my dad to take me and a friend uh, one week, I met uh, Marv Wolfman and and Len Wein, who were going uh, on the tour. And they were going every week. They were coming back every week and then they'd split off from the tour and go go uh, talk to the different editors uh, and uh, see if they could, you know, sell them stories or you know, whatever. And I thought that was a great idea. So I started sneaking into Manhattan on my own <laughs> and going even during the uh, school year, leaving at like three o'clock for my school uh, and racing into Manhattan <laughs> and hanging out at the DC offices trying to sell stories to the different editors. Was it easier to do it at Marvel than DC or easier? At no, DC? no, it was, uh, it was impossible at Marvel. Uh, mm. Marvel didn't have, I mean, Marvel had a very small staff because they, uh, they were publishing at that point maybe 10 books a month. Uh, and Stan edited all of them, uh, wrote half of them. <laughs> you know, and Roy Thomas wrote the other half. Uh, and I think Gary Frieder you know, did, did the occasional fill-in story. Um, went, uh, at DC, you know, DC was doing 30, 30 titles a month or something like that. And each editor had about five books. Uh, and they also had these little uh, anthology supernatural books uh, like House of Secrets and uh, The Witching Hour where editors were uh, more open to using, you know, new, new people uh, experimentally on like a five-page, six-page story. So that, that was what really gave me my start was working uh, for DC, doing these little supernatural stories, which enabled me to hone my craft, you know, develop, you know, some sense of how the stuff would have worked, you know, even though I was a kid. How old were you I when you sold, sold your first story? I sold my first script just before I turned 16. Wow. So it was, uh, yeah, it was the summer I was, I, I was 15. Uh, it was the summer of 68. I sold it after working on the story for, I guess, better part of two months, the entire summer, with Murray Boltonoff, who was the editor of a, of a book called uh, Tales of the Unexpected. He had seen me coming in and talking to Dick Giordano. That they shared an office uh, together with uh, Joe Orlando, who was editing House of Mystery. And he saw me coming in almost every week you know, to sit with Dick and talk about stories and so on. And he assumed that I was 
writing for Dick. And Dick at that point was one of the fair haired newer editors. So Murray, who was definitely trying to keep his job and keep uh, up with things, thought that he would give me a, you know, a, a story and that way he'd be working with one of the new, uh, new talent that Dick had brought in. But of course, Dick had not actually bought anything from me by that point. Yeah. <laughs> so Murray, Murray ended up buying my first story and was horrified to realize that he hadn't actually been, been working with a, uh, an established new talent, but had in fact established a new talent. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that was the last story I sold to Murray for like five, six years. I think he was wow. really pissed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I read something that you said that I thought was so interesting. When you started working at Marvel, you took over, you really took over the biggest comic there was, Amazing Spider-Man. And you- Well, it was Marvel's biggest comic. I mean, the biggest comic still at that point was Superman. But yeah, it was, it was definitely Marvel's uh, top selling book. You said something about feeling like, uh, almost like you had imposter syndrome. Like, <laughs> did you really- <laughs> did you really have the chops to to take on to fill those shoes well it was it was interesting because by that point i'd been i think writing for marvel for at least a year and a half maybe two years uh i'd started off with submariner and iron man and uh daredevil uh you know sort of working my way up i had taken on thor a few months before uh i'd written hulk you know, so I was slowly feeling like I, I knew what I was doing. And I was young enough that I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, and with the arrogance of youth, you know, you, you always assume you're more capable than you are. So when I took on Spider-Man, it was kind of, I got it by default because when Stan gave up his books, he wanted Roy to take them over. But Roy was not interested in writing Spider-Man. He'd done some fill-in issues, and he just uh, just wasn't a character that spoke to him. Mm. So I was the next in line. And I took it over with John Romita as my uh, mentor on the book, and, and he, he actually got uh, lead billing on the book. And when I was writing it, I, I was of two minds. On the, on the one hand, I felt, yeah, I can do this because Peter Parker is a character that I'd loved since he since he had come out, uh, and I was about Peter's age. <laughs> that was the other right. other irony. So I could totally relate to him as a character, uh, and with John as my uh, mentor and guide, I couldn't go wrong in terms of plotting. So for the most part, it was just can I match. Stan's voice, you know, this, the, the, the kind of dialogue that he had. Now, I don't know that I specifically felt like an imposter with that book, but I certainly felt like an imposter in general, because everybody else that I, that I, was, that I was friends with were all five to 10 years older than me. And mm -hmm. I was this kid, you know, and I, I learned how to behave like an adult. But, you know, honestly, uh, you're 18 years old, you're a child. And, and yet it didn't hold you back from not only doing great writing, but like creating. You, you helped to, to shape a lot of the Marvel Universe in that, in that time. Well, I, it was hard not to when you, when you yeah, write I mean, a book. Yeah, and also it was very early days. When I took Spider-Man over, for example, uh, 
I think the book had, had been around as a as a solo title for only about nine years, which you know what 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 books were introduced nine years ago <laughs> today, right? right. Uh, so there were only there were I I came in I think at issue one sixteen or something like that. Wow. Uh, or 111. I think it was actually it was 111. That's, you know, like barely 10 years, you know, of titles. To work on those books at that period of time, you, you had to create new material just to, to fill in the titles, you know, to, to keep things going. I like to bring back characters that had existed uh, in previous stories that were uh, favorites of mine. But realistically, you know, you can't, you can only do so much of that. You have to bring in new characters. That's actually though phenomenal when I you just saying that you started with around 111 that like one 10 issues after that you're killing off Gwen State. <laughs> yeah. I mean that's like a really was a big radical thing at the yeah. time, you know. Yeah. And now they can't keep anyone dead, but like I can only take partial credit for that. Uh in that the idea to kill kill off a, a supporting character was uh, John Ramirez initially. He was a uh, a fan of uh, Milton Kniff, the, the comic strip uh, writer artist who did Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon in the 40s and 50s. And Kniff would occasionally do a story that a storyline that would end with one of the main supporting characters dying. And John's attitude uh, was that this is a way to to remind the readers that things that happen in the book are are uh, substantial and you better not miss an issue <laughs> so it's both the creative and a marketing decision but his his thought was to kill off aunt may and i was the one who suggested that we we do that with uh gwen stacy uh and then once once she was dead stan wanted to bring her back because he was getting harassed at uh college campuses <laughs> and I, I i i was like you can't you know i mean it, it, we have to we, when a character dies they should die and it should mean something and it should have repercussions and you can't reverse it but he insisted so we did the clone story and that was deliberately done so that it was not when stacy that was brought back it was uh you know a clone she is i think the only marvel character I mean, the only major Marvel character who's, who's died, who has not come back. Uh, <laughs> even though we see, you know, alternate universe versions of her, uh, like, uh, like Ghost Spider, she's definitely remained, you know, an iconic, tragic figure. I think that's one of the, one of the unfortunate aspects of the business is that some characters are brought back prematurely. I think you can, you can make an argument that they can come back 10 years later, let's say. One of the constraints that Marvel has is that supposedly there's never been a break in their continuity. Uh, so with DC, you know, you could say, well, the, because of uh, the new 52, this character can come back and it's not, you know, a reversal of, of the original story. It's just a, you know, a new version of the character. Uh, same with Rebirth, you know, they, they sort of give themselves the out of a reboot, you know, of their universe. But Marvel's continuity, theoretically, is continuous. You know, there's never been a, a, a complete reimagining or re restarting of the Marvel universe. What happens when you see how people are handling 
some of your signature characters and events now? Like, I, I mean, there's only one case where I feel that uh, people have completely screwed up a character that that I co-created, and that that's uh, with Firestorm. It infuriates me because it's a a, a character that has been around now for over for over 40 years and has a very clear simple structure each kind of a character in my view the successful uh, superhero characters are characters that represent some aspect of our human condition something that we as people kind of have to deal with in in our lives i mean peter parker you know is clearly the misunderstood adolescent you know trying to find his way uh, into the into the adult world. I mean, this is the Parker that I care about, uh, who's who's trying to understand h- how to deal with the, the, the power that he's gained as he's entering into adulthood, which is a teenage problem. You know, it's a problem that teenagers grasp. You're suddenly more powerful. Things, unexpected changes to your body, uh, <laughs> strange things that you weren't able to do before, problems that that overwhelm you. That's why he was so perfect as a teenage superhero. That's why the most effective version of the character, to my mind, is the Tom Holland version, because you believe that Tom Holland is a teenager. Firestorm is probably the only character that I've created where the archetype was so perfectly realized and not intentionally. I mean, it's it's not like I, I had this brilliant stroke of genius, but I had this notion of a, a teenager with the voice of an adult in his head. And that is actually a very human situation. Any teenager going around in life hears the voice of his parents, hears the voice of his teachers, hears the voice of authority, and they are in a struggle with it. You know, they are in a struggle with that that adult voice in their heads, uh, trying to assert it, assert their own identity at the same time that they're being told, you know, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and I think every teenager can recognize that. So it's an archetype. For some reason, DC can't seem to fucking get that right. You know, they just constantly change it and eliminate that core element, which is the only thing that makes that character unique. It's literally the only thing. You know, <laughs> uh, it, he has a cool flaming head, which is basically the human torch's head. <laughs> you know, he's a teenager. But the only thing that makes him unique is that he has Martin Stein's mind in his body, that he's mm-hmm. two people in one. And for some reason, they constantly, constantly fuck that up. And I don't understand why. At least with the films, DC can't get anything right. I mean, that's just, <laughs> yeah, they, I'm not, I just, I've always been a Marvel guy, but I read a lot of DC things too, because. It's really, you know, for me, writer, artist-driven. It's good people mm-hmm. on the books. I'll check it out. But uh, the movies, I always feel like they cannot get it together, mostly because they have no humor. DC right? tends to, even, even in the books that have comedic elements, they take these books too seriously. It's, a, it's an aspect of the corporate culture. And the other problem that they have is they have no single creative voice for the company. Stan has been out of Marvel for 50 years, but his voice is still the creative voice of Marvel. And Jack Kirby is still the creative visual identity of Marvel. Uh, you could, you, there are a lot of variations on all that, but that's the, that's the template 
that everyone is kind of drawing from in the way that, say, minstrels of the Middle Ages would make up stories and songs, but they fit a template that they carried around in their heads so they could sound like they were making up something really new and interesting, specifically to a particular environment that they were in. They could sing a song about this prince or this castle or this uh, local fable, but they had a template that they they were playing off of. At DC, there is no template. And so Marvel, uh, Marvel has that template. DC does not have a template. So they, they go wrong. (laughs) And when, when uh, people come in to do DC movies, they have nothing to really look at, you know, other than uh, like uh, the Frank Miller's Dark Knight Detective, which has probably been overused to, to such a degree that it's, it's become a cliche. That's the only creative template that people look at and say, oh, that's what we should be doing. But that's, again, 30 years ago, and nobody has done it as well as Frank did it, not even Frank, <laughs> you know, when he came back right. to do it again. You know, the MCU works because it is directly derived from the attitudes of the 1960s Marvel books, as enhanced over the decades with other writers and other uh, artists, you know, interpreting it. It's, it's really interesting that you mention The Dark Knight because I was thinking about The Dark Knight in relation to you. One of the interesting things in The Dark Knight is when these gangs of violent vigilantes and thugs start appropriating Batman's symbol mm-hmm. and wearing it in, in ways that he doesn't condone and committing acts of violence but sort of just with the the symbol that's been sort of bastardized by them. Mm-hmm. And I think that in some ways, that's what's going on with your creation with the Punisher. With the Punisher, yeah. Yeah, I think you that's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, it is, it is frustrating to see a character uh, like the Punisher that was never intended to be a, a heroic figure. You know, uh, I mean, initially he was a pure villain, my particular beef is with police departments and uh, to a lesser degree, military uh, units that embrace the Punisher skull because it's, it's, he's an outlaw. <laughs> you know? right. He is, a, he is a, uh, a violator of the law. And if you are a police department and you're using his symbol, you are announcing yourselves as outlaws and as vigilantes taking the law into your own hands. And obviously that is not right. And then of course, all the, the, the meathead neo-fascists and uh, neo-Nazis embracing this, you know, are, it's extremely frustrating, but it's understandable because they're morons, you know, and they, none, of them, none of them are capable of, of, of reading you know, anything. So they, uh, they, they don't actually know what they're doing. <laughs> you know? I think they think it's a Nazi symbol. You know, I've heard some people who should know better claiming that the, that, uh, the Punisher skull was inspired by the, the Totenkampf uh, skull of the SS, when in fact it was not. <laughs> it was inspired by a combination of pirates and uh, the uh, character, the Phantom, with uh, the skull cave and the skull ring. But even not knowing that, you'd simply have had to have read the comic book 
to know that he would have beaten the crap out of people like these neo-Nazis and, and right. neo-fascists. Uh, so the idea that they're embracing that symbol shows their, their incredible stupidity. And in response, you started selling Black Lives Matter Punisher t-shirts, am I right? Yes, we did a fundraiser last year when the, the Black Lives Matter protests were uh, expanding. We raised money, we worked with a company that sold the, the shirts and then contributed the, the raised funds to Black Lives Matter LA. And we worked with uh, 20 odd uh, young artists of color to reinterpret the symbol you know, in a way that would uh, reclaim it or attempt to reclaim it as a symbol against oppression rather than as a symbol for oppression. I mean, for all the, all the flaws of that character, the Punisher represents a, uh, a rejection of authoritarianism in addition to you know, his own somewhat immoral you know, and violent uh, war on actual criminals. I mean, he's not a political character. His enemies are criminals. You know? So the, the, the idea that he would ever, you know, take a side in a, in a political argument would just boggle his mind. Was it ever you wanted to express certain opinions in that kind of domain in your work? And were you allowed to or did you get any resistance? Yeah, I, you know, I never had a problem addressing progressive ideas ever in comics uh, because everybody in comics was progressive. Well, there may be one or two people who were, you know, a bit more uh, conservative or arch conservative, but they, they didn't actually make a, 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 an impact. You know, I mean, Ditko is probably the most conservative person next to people like uh, Frank Miller, you know, over the last 50, 60 years. And while he had an impact, he didn't have an impact once he became conservative in his work you know mm. his his work on spider-man was anything but you know did, at, at least as we, far as we can tell because stan as an extremely progressive liberal new yorker wrote the dialogue for that character so god only knows you know what what's his original intentions have been for some some of these characters he might have thought that uh, the crime master had a point uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> we, we don't know <laughs> I mean, he, he, he certainly, I think, thought Norman Osborn was a more sympathetic character than Stan portrayed him as. Mm. Um, wow. So, you know, you, you look at these characters, you look at these books over the decades, and comic books have always been a, a bastion of progressive attitudes. Probably the, the most pushback that I've ever received for my progressive stances occurred in the last 10 years or so, because... I feel a little awkward mentioning this because I don't actually write for them at the moment, but at Marvel, any attempt to actually criticize or even slightly lampoon people like Donald Trump was pushed back. You would be pushed against doing that because Ike Perlmutter, uh, who owns Marvel, was a big friend of Trump. So you wow. couldn't do those stories. Uh, you know, I had at one point done, made some just joke, you know, in a story that uh, that made, made a reference to Trump. And my editor said, you know, I think we're going to not let that go through because uh, huh. it, it just wouldn't wouldn't play very well, you know. But that's about the only pushback. And for the most part, if you played it 
more subtly than I was going to be playing it, it wouldn't probably have even been an issue. That's interesting to me. Well, I'm, uh, I'm generally with you, uh, I'd say 98% of the time on your tweets. Man. <laughs> uh, I'm an opinionated guy. And, and at the, I'm at the age now where I, I don't, I have no more fucks to give. <laughs> That's good, man. I noticed this thing and I wanted to talk to some Marvel writer about it. I know when I was reading a lot of comics in a short period of time, a few months ago, I started thinking about the endings of stories in a lot of, especially older, like 70s and even 60s comics, that frequently when a story ends, there's something that happens in Marvel comics that I don't think happens in DC comics or, or other types of comics, where there'll be this sort of unexpected downbeat ending where just in the last couple of panels, you know, the fight will happen and the villain is defeated and the heroes are, you know, getting ready to leave. And then there'll be some kind of conversation where somebody will say, well, we won. And then somebody will go, well, did we though? Because look what's, look at the aftermath. And they'll all <laughs> right. kind of walk off like arm in arm. And it feels like in different variations, I see that in a lot of comics. And, and yet when you read like Batman comics, the way those writers often frame their stories is like, they'll start with a, a question about a cat. And then at the end, they'll say, well, that's the cat that ate the canary. So it's like a little more right. like these clever things. And I don't see Marvel, do, do, do you see that at that, all? I, yeah, I think, and there's a very specific, I think a very specific reason that that's the case. It goes back to a couple of very influential uh, stories by Stan with Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. In that book that you referenced, you know, all the marvels, the very first story that, that, he, that he talks about is This Man, This Monster, right. uh, which is a kind of unique one-shot story, but it encompasses the, the arc of a Marvel story, which is threat, conflict, big resolution, letdown. What you're talking about is the letdown. And the letdown is that the recognition that while we've won this fight, the battle will go on and we haven't solved our underlying problems. Stan's recognition early on was that superhero, being a superhero doesn't solve your problems. It just creates new problems. <laughs> Right. <laughs> in other words, and if you remember the other story that was very influential, I think for a generation of, of comic book writers and then those who followed us, which is the master uh, planner story of Spider-Man. Same thing, you know, a, a threat, a conflict, you know, resolution, uh, triumph, and then ultimately the letdown. And the letdown in this case is that classic uh, sequence of panels as Peter Parker is leaving his Aunt May in the hospital. He's, he's won the day. He's, uh, you know, succeeded in saving her life. And he's walking away. We're seeing him through the blinds, I think it is, of the, of the, uh, the hospital rooms as a doctor is thinking about Peter Parker and thinking, what a great kid this is, you know, that so helpful uh, to uh, his, his aunt, you know, such a, such a responsible person. More people should be like him instead of that crappy superhero spider-man 
Right. And it's that notion that being heroic doesn't solve anything. You know, I mean, it solves the, it solves the, the, the conflict, but it doesn't solve your personal life. It doesn't solve the, the issues of, of life that keep you, keep you up at night, you know, <laughs> keep you going. And, and that's always been like, I think the, the fundamental realization at Marvel, which is that being a superhero is secondary to the things that give you trouble in your daily life. So yeah, you win the big battle, but so what? Ultimately, you know, so what? You still have to pay your rent, you know? But I think those, those two stories showed the more deeper underlying emotional truth, you know, that Marvel recognizes. At DC, the superheroes are, are faced with a challenge and they overcome the challenge and then the challenge is over. You know, it, it, it might be framed as a, as a puzzle, as, as you say, you know, in a, a, with a quip or maybe not even a quip, but, you know, just some, some simple closed end loop. There is no end to the loop at Marvel. And as a result, the, the tragedy of life is the underlying story point of view at Marvel. And I think that's why Marvel's books, you know, have, have the, the kind of fanatic loyalty that they have. And also why it's impossible to stop reading them. <laughs> you got to know what's going to happen next month. You know, you've got to, you, you, you're enmeshed with these characters, you know, uh, their, their, their problems are your problems uh, and you, you want to know. Yeah. Well, you That's really kind of contributed to that with your work, man, because, you know, well, I was yeah, reading, I think... a, you know, a bunch of stuff that you did just to refresh my memory and enjoy some stuff with all the varied characters. And you just did so much great <laughs> stuff. You know, you know you. it really is great to, like, meet you and talk to you about this stuff. And yeah, know. fantastic. Well, it's been my privilege. Yeah. Um, one last thing. So I, when this gets all edited, and I usually score the episodes, um, I often ask people like yourself that we interview, if you were going to have a theme song, like something that you're <laughs> going to walk into a con that is playing, that's totally focused on what, who you are, what is it? Well, I have to admit to, to that... that, that uh, my, my, my musical cultural ethos um, goes back to uh, uh, late, late mid-60s uh, uh, rock. And uh, I am a massive fan of the first two albums of Cream. Oh, really? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, until he went, went completely insane, Eric Clapton was my god. Uh, <laughs> I was, and I think... Uh, you know, the, both Brave Ulysses and Sunshine of, uh, of Your Mind are the two songs that, uh, you know, recur in my, in my dreams if I, if I had them.
one of my uh, uh, highlights of my life was seeing Clapton perform uh, with Delaney and Bonnie at oh, wow. uh, the Fillmore East. Uh, oh, so that's like, after he broke up with uh, Cream and before he became a solo act, you know, he, he went right. on tour with them. 1970. And uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful evening. You know, just, uh, I, I mean, it just blew my mind. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a hopeless. <laughs> hopeless All right, well, good. You gave uh, me a little uh, something to, you know, get you a tune in there. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll take a hit of acid and I'll write it. <laughs> well, Jerry Conway, thank you so much for talking to us. Sure, it's my pleasure. Real thank you pleasure. guys. Grown ass man.